Good morning. You can stay standing, please. Uh, my name is Tony, and I praise God that we get to read, listen, and then learn from Dave what this passage in Luke 2, 25, 35 has, to, has for us personally and as a church. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had, was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Tony. And good morning and Merry Christmas, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you, and we are so glad that you have decided to worship with us today. My name is Dave Hahn, and as always, it is my privilege to read God's Word and to open God's Word with and for you. So two Fridays ago, it was Black Friday, and for some odd reason, Sheila and Seth and I decided to go out to eat that day. It's really just not a great day to go out and really do anything, but we decided to go out and get something to eat. And as we pulled into the restaurant that we chose, the lot looked somewhat, but not completely crowded, which led me to declare 30 minutes. That's as long as I'm willing to wait. Seth agreed. Guess who didn't? <laughs> and uh, it got me thinking, we all do this, right? Um, we, we walk into a crowded restaurant with a time limit in mind, and certain factors that are personal to us cause fluctuation in the amount of time that we are willing to wait. And this got me wondering, because I'm a curious guy, what factors drive our willingness to wait or not to? And at the end of the day, as I thought about it, I think it is two things. Desperation and anticipation. The more desperate we are, for whatever it is that we are waiting for, or the more excited we are in anticipation for whatever lies at the end of said waiting, the more willing we are to wait for it. The history of God's people has been one in which waiting is routinely required. And like us, the people of Israel grew impatient and they stepped out on their own and ultimately questioned whether waiting for God was worth it. Is waiting for God worth it? From Genesis chapter 3 onward, God had promised a Savior, a Messiah, His Son, 
to his people. That is at least 4,000 years of waiting. But in that span of time, it was perhaps the last 400 years that was the most difficult. From the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, um, and also the last prophet of the Old Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, 400 years had passed and God was silent. Our nation, just for way of comparison, is 245 years old. Who can even imagine 1776? And that's barely half of the amount of time that God was silent from Malachi to Matthew. 400 years, my friends, is a long time to wait for anything or for anyone, and it is especially long the more grim things look and the more silent God is. During that 400 years, Israel had spent time in and out of the captivity of foreign enemies until finally in 63 BC, they became subject to and ruled by Rome. And in the eyes of most Israelites, Rome's oppression and their occupation was the Israelites' biggest problem. A remnant few were waiting for God's Messiah to come to overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as a sovereign, ruling nation. But Israel had much deeper problems, and God had much bigger plans. To be clear, the time of silence between Malachi and Matthew did not mean that God stopped loving or guarding or protecting Israel. Rather, it meant that he had stopped speaking directly or indirectly to his people through his chosen instruments. But in the announcement to Elizabeth and Zechariah of John the Baptist, their son, and Jesus' forerunner, and in the announcement to Mary and Joseph regarding the birth of Jesus, God's own son, and in the announcement to the shepherds of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, and then to Simeon in a temple in Jerusalem, once again, God began to speak. But would the things God say and do, after all that time, be worth the wait? Would what God had to say and would what he would do be worth the wait? Simeon was about to find out. Beginning in verse 25, I'll read again. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Simeon 
is generally thought of as an old man, most likely due to verse 26 and 28, where his death and departure are mentioned. And perhaps Simeon was a man of advanced years, but there is really no evidence of his age, one way or the other, outside of what we infer and gather from those two verses. But what we do know of Simeon is somewhat limited, and it is significant. He appears to be a common man, not a priest, but just a common man with a very common name. Curiously, the name Simeon means God has heard. Simeon means God has heard. So think of that. A man who anxiously awaited and anticipated God's Messiah and who had faithfully prayed and waited to that end has a name that means God has heard. Wouldn't we love to be assured that God has heard our cries and our longings? And God named him such. So while Simeon has a common name, and while he appears to be a common man, what he had that was uncommon was his faith in God. He had an uncommon faith in God. Simeon is described, according to Scripture, as righteous and devout. To be described as righteous in the Bible meant that that person was justified by faith before God. That God saw him as righteous and justified him according to his faith. And to be devout meant that you were cautious. That's actually what that word means, cautious. And that you were concerned for the things of God. So Simeon was careful regarding how he treated God, how he obeyed God, and how he lived before God and others. And as such, he was among a small remnant of Israel who believed what God had commanded and what God had promised in his word. The consolation of Israel is just another way of saying the coming of Messiah. Consolation, that word means help or rescue, and Israel needed it, but in ways that were far bigger than what they had realized. God had always provided helps, and he had always provided rescues to his people, Israel, whether he supernaturally intervened and provided for them, or whether he used prophets, judges, or kings to guard and protect and provide. See, the whole of the Old Testament is a repeating story of God being faithful to the covenant that he had established and fulfilled on behalf of himself and the Israelites. See, that's what covenant means. Covenant means I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. And that's what God had established between himself and Israel in spite of Israel's faithlessness. And each of God's helps and rescues were shadows of the reality that was to come in the person of his son, the promised Messiah. After all, the only one who could bring consolation was God's long-awaited and foretold consoler. A help, a rescue from God in the person of his son. So after 400 years we find the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. 
And that's an unusual phrase and an unusual idea at this time for a couple of reasons. Certainly, the seeming absence of God's Spirit and for those 400 years to his sudden and now frequent appearances, but it's also unusual in this sense. In the Old Testament, we often see the Spirit come and go as God directs according to his purposes. And it rested on and in his people for a time, usually to speak for God. But very rarely, my friends, very rarely did the Spirit remain on someone for an extended period of time. But based upon the person of Simeon and the phrasing of this verse, we see a continuing presence of the Spirit of God on him. God's Spirit talked to Simeon, assured Simeon, and led him unceasingly. That was unusual. See, the reason that we as Christians celebrate and recognize the day of Pentecost is because it signifies God's Spirit resting on us and remaining in us forever. The Spirit had always come, but it had never remained in and upon His people forever. But that's what the day of Pentecost represents. Until that day, the Spirit had not been promised to God's people in such a way. Throughout the Gospels, most explicitly in John 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus promised his Holy Spirit to his disciples. And in an upper room in Jerusalem, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, his promise was fulfilled. God's Holy Spirit came upon his own, dwelled his own, and remained upon his own for all eternity. That means... There is no Christian today or from that time to today who is able to say, as David did in Psalm 51, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You cannot say that as a Christian. According to Romans 8-9, the Spirit of God lives in us forever. We are his dwelling place. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Do you see how significant this is? God's Spirit does not leave those who belong to Christ, no matter how often we sin or how deeply we grieve him in our sin. The Spirit does not come and go. Rather, by his grace and in his mercy, he convicts us of our sin and he convinces us of our righteousness in Christ, pointing us to the cross and the empty tomb where our salvation is on display. And that same spirit, the same spirit that indwells you and me, brought Simeon to the temple at the same time as Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Simeon was a man led by the Holy Spirit, demonstrated in his hearing God's promise to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
And in his being prompted to go to the temple at the exact right time, he heard from God's Spirit and he was led into the temple by God's Spirit at the exact time that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph walked in. And as described in verses 22 to 24 of Luke 2, the law of Moses required this visit for the parents of every firstborn male as part of the purification rites and the consecration of this child to the Lord. So as Mary and Joseph bring Jesus in, Simeon took Jesus from them and put him in his arms. I am going to guess that there is a gap of information between verses 27 and 28. And that Simeon simply did not grab Jesus from his parents' arms unannounced. Rather, I would imagine that the Holy Spirit brought them all together and he stirred up a conversation between them and that in and through Simeon hearing their story, that Simeon realized that this was the one This was the one that he had been waiting for. And then, upon that understanding, as the Spirit revealed it to him, Simeon snatched Jesus up in his arms, hopefully with the permission of Mary and Joseph, and he blessed God. Disciples Church, have we seen, have we seen Jesus for who he truly is Have we taken him unto ourselves in this way, grabbing hold of all that he is with great joy, seeing in him our salvation? Then in response, have we blessed God as Simeon did? To bless God, my friends, is to worship God. Having recognized who God is and what he has done for us, have our hearts been stirred in gladness and adoration unto him. Friends, for that to happen in us, for us to see Jesus for who he is and to take him unto ourselves and then to bless God for him, it requires the revelation of God from the Spirit of God the revelation of our sin and its punishment, which is spiritual death, and then the revelation of our need for and the source of our salvation, that we need the same consolation and rescue that Simeon longed for. But the Spirit of God needs to reveal those things to us. See, outside of God's revelation through his word and by his spirit, we will not and cannot see our sin and our salvation. And we will have no desire to take Christ unto ourselves or to bless God for him as we see Simeon do. Verse 28. He blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This section is often referred to as the Song of Simeon, and it is the fifth hymn of thanksgiving and praise found in the first two chapters of Luke. 
First there was Elizabeth, and then Mary, and then Zechariah, and the angels each had theirs, and now Simeon has his, the fifth one in two chapters. And Simeon's begins this way. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. This language, my friends, is similar to that of a slave who has been set free. See, the word servant here is the word doulos. And if you remember, doulos is the word slave. Now you are letting your slave depart in peace, it could read. We don't know how long Simeon had waited for Jesus, either in the temple itself or prior to stepping foot into it. But his language here implies that he had been waiting a long time, and it was anguishing. As one commentator put it, it was as if Simeon were commanded by God to keep a lonely watch through the night until he saw the sun come up. This now was for him God's sunrise. And because Jesus had come, Simeon could be relieved of his watch. His tour of duty in God's army was over. And peacetime, in a very real sense, had come in the person of this newborn baby. There before Simeon's eyes, cradled in his arms, lay the salvation the Lord had long promised and the very face of God himself. According to your word is how this verse ends. Certainly this is referring to the words of personal revelation to Simeon by God's spirit that he would not die until he saw the Lord's salvation. But more than that, the according to your word is in reference to the eternal word of God, which had been prophesied for millennia in the Old Testament. As one pastor noted, the word of God is a collection of promises from the one true and living God. And the heart of these promises is that God would send his son, the Savior, into the world to redeem sinners from death and hell, to establish his glorious kingdom on earth. And in that kingdom, all the remaining promises of God would be fulfilled. My friends, conservatively, there are more than 300 individual prophecies made in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And the first one appears just three chapters in to the first book of Genesis. In Genesis 3.15, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a foretelling, three chapters in, of the crucifixion of Christ, which would happen 4,000 years later, where the sins of both Jew and Gentile would be forgiven. And that is what verses 31 and 32 are all about. The salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Gentiles are people like most all of us, non-Jewish people who because they were not part of God's chosen people and lived according to their own sense of right and wrong only knew darkness but we're in great need of light. That's who Gentiles are. And the miracle of Christ, my friends, according to Isaiah 9, is that those living in darkness now have a light to look to in Jesus. A light for revelation, according to verse 32. The revelation of sin and salvation in the light of Christ. Friends, Jews and Gentiles alike must see their sinfulness. And having seen their sin, come to God by grace and through faith in his Son. The one of whom it was said, all the families of the earth shall be blessed and that God would establish his throne forever. He would be Israel's glory. Israel's glory is found in that they are God's chosen people from whom his salvation would come. Jesus Christ, my friends, God's only begotten Son, is the glory of Israel. He is Israel's glory. Finishing with verses 33 through 35. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Imagine hearing such things about your child. I'm touched when I hear others say that Seth is smart or kind or polite, there must have been incredible joy and surprise for Mary and for Joseph, for them to see how God had touched the hearts of others with an understanding of their son, something that they may not have understood even themselves. Simeon said things to them about Jesus that very likely no one else had ever done. There are songs and there are movies and pop culture that have long explored this question, and I think that it is worth asking. Did Mary and Joseph truly understand who their son was and what his birth signified? Did they really understand it? If not, Simeon was going to try and shed some light on all of that in verses 34 and 35. See, in these two verses, Simeon speaks directly to Mary, saying, he is going to bring salvation to the whole world, but it's not going to be all rainbows and puppy dogs. That's a paraphrase. Friends, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not the sweet and serene manger scene that we set up underneath our Christmas trees. And it is not the sanitized depiction of Jesus on the cross with little to no blood found on his body. His life from birth to death was dirty and smelly and costly and it was bloody. And not everyone was, nor still is, 
thrilled that he came. And they're not thrilled with what he said. They killed him after all. Simeon was letting Mary and Joseph know that there would be a weight and a seriousness to his mission. And there would be a deep cost for the salvation of all people, Jews and Gentiles. And that there would be many variances in how people would respond to him. That he would bring about the fall and the rising of many and be a sign that is opposed. After all, what do we see in the Gospels? There were some who followed Jesus and there were some who fled. There were some who repented of their sin and there were others who rebelled. There were some who blasphemed against God and there were others who believed. And so it goes today. As the old saying goes, the same sun that softens butter hardens clay. Friends, there is no neutrality with Jesus Christ. You are either for him or you are against him. Those are not my words. Those are his. Jesus is the polarizing figure of history, causing some to rise and causing others to fall. So what does that all mean? It means that the proud and the self-righteous will fall because of their unbelief and rejection of Jesus, while the humble and the meek will be lifted up through their faith in Jesus. Lifted up literally in the resurrection of the dead, but also lifted spiritually in their right standing before God. That's what Simeon is referring to here. And Jesus' life and his death and resurrection would reveal who's who. Those who come to God by grace and through faith in Christ are the true Israel and the true sons of Abraham. It began by faith in God according to Genesis 15 and it ends the same way. It's always been faith. And my friends, our lineage and our bloodline is irrelevant to our spiritual heritage. Our lineage and our bloodline is irrelevant to our spiritual heritage because it is not our own blood that makes us the family of God, but the blood of Jesus. It is the blood of Jesus that makes us family. And for Mary, Jesus' mother, the weight of her son's suffering and death would fall especially heavy. Watching Jesus be betrayed and beaten and rejected and crucified would be like a sword into her soul. Imagine having to watch your child endure all that Jesus experienced and she was right there for all of it. Mary's life, friends, is a picture of both the privilege and the burden of being among the chosen of God. And Simeon's final words at the end of verse 35 bring us back to where we started, Revelation. It says, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. According to a 2017 Gallup poll, 87% of Americans believe in God. 
but all it takes is a cursory glance at the state of our nation to realize that can't be right. That can't be right. The bulk of Jews at the time of Jesus' time on earth would have affirmed their belief in God as well, but most of them rejected Jesus, the very one that God promised would come. Do you realize, my friends, that according to Acts 1, verse 15, after his death and resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, there were only 120 people in the upper room waiting for God's Spirit. 120 people of all of Israel. I think it's easy for a person to say, I believe in God. And it might even be easy for someone to say, I believe in Jesus. But words don't always tell the whole story. A person's true declaration regarding Jesus is better seen and understood in and through the life that they live. Through what flows out of them in word and deed based on the thoughts of their hearts. And through that person's response to Jesus having suffered for them. What is your response to Jesus having suffered and died for you? God looks on our hearts and he knows them better than we do. And we don't fool him with empty words and religious behaviors that flow from a heart of unbelief and rebellion against him. We and others may speak of our belief in God, but I'm not sure that that question or affirmation is particularly helpful or revealing. After all, what do we mean by believe? Is it what the Bible means when it speaks of belief? And which God are we referring to? Are we talking about the God of the Bible or some other higher power of our own making? I think that the better, more revealing question to ask ourselves and others is this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And here's why I think that that's a better question. Because love is an attitude of the heart that leads to action. Do you love Jesus? Love is an attitude of the heart that leads to action. And Jesus is the one true living God, so we know which God we're talking about. We can really get down to what matters by asking the question that way. So ask yourself and ask others, do you love Jesus? My friends, the thoughts of our hearts sooner or later will be laid bare before God and men, and that's what verse 35 means and our acceptance of Jesus as Lord and Savior or our rejection of him will ultimately reveal who we are and what we really believe just as it did from Jesus' first cry till his final breath and those who saw him. See, our response to Jesus is an indictment on the hearts of men, not Jesus. Jesus is not on trial. We are in our response to him. So I ask you today, what is your heart truly thinking about Jesus? Are you desperate for him, eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of his every promise, 
What do you really believe about God's Son? So our wait for that Black Friday lunch ended up being 30 minutes. But if I'm honest, it wasn't really worth it. There are a lot of reasons for that. I would probably eat there again, but I wouldn't wait as long. Disappointment will do that to a person. (laughs) Friends, if you are in desperate anticipation for God and he asks you to wait, whether it be about something that you're praying about, something you believe he is leading you in, or for the second coming of Christ himself, here are two things to ask yourself. When God has asked me to wait in the past, was he worth the wait? And did I get what I was waiting for? When he's asked me to wait in the past, was it worth it? And did I get what I was waiting for? For several millennia, there was always a remnant of Jews waiting for God to send his Messiah. And for decades prior to his coming, God's people looked for a king that would conquer Rome, but what they got was not what they expected. They didn't get a powerful earthly king who sought to conquer Rome. They got the king of kings who suffered, bled, and died to conquer their true enemies, sin and death. Because God knew that forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus is what they needed and what we need more than anything. The baby in Simeon's arms is sufficient for all our deepest longings, my friends. So why look to or ask for anything else? And that leads me to the last question that I have for you today. I felt like I've asked you a lot. Is what you anticipate of God in keeping with who he is, what he said he would do, and what gives him glory instead of you? Is what you anticipate or expect of God in keeping with who he is, what he said he would do, and what gives him glory instead of you? If not, you should expect to be disappointed. The very best of what God had to give came 2,000 years ago in an unexpected way and at an unexpected time. And as such, most everyone missed him. Disciples Church, if God has made you wait before, and I bet he has, but then he showed himself to be good, wise, and faithful, knowing better than you do what is needed, and I know he has done that. Shouldn't that be all the encouragement that you need to trust him and wait for him this time around and the next? Shouldn't that be enough reason? Human history, my friends, has shown that God's son, God's word, God's will, and God's timing are always perfect. That he is faithful to do abundantly more than he said he would do, and that the wait is always worth it. Just ask Simeon. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, what more can heaven give than your only begotten Son? Born in a manger, nailed to a cross, and raised from the grave for our salvation. He is Israel's glory and the salvation of everyone who loves him and calls upon his name.
He is seated with you in heaven at your right hand, but he also lives in us by the one he promised, your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, give us a deep sense of your presence and convict us of our sins, even as you convince us of our righteousness and our new identity in Christ our Lord. Remind us that we have all that we need in Jesus and the grace that he gives, and let the greatest thing we long for today be his return for us. Father, save the lost among us today and encourage your chosen ones to live in you and for you alone. Would you be glorified in us today and always? In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.